Good morning, Mission Fellowship. It's hard to believe that we have not been with each other in 14 weeks. I miss seeing all of you very, very much. It's been especially heartbreaking because I so desire to shepherd you through these difficult and confusing days. I look forward to being able to see you all face to face in three weeks, Lord willing. In the meantime, if you need to talk, please reach out to me at Hans at Mission Salem or give me a call or chat with any of our elders. They're available to minister to you. This last week, I sent out our plan to regather as well as a link to a blog post that I wrote on the very pertinent topic of righteousness and justice. It's available at the bottom of our website at missionsalem.com. I would highly recommend and encourage you all to read through both of those and let me know if you have any thoughts or questions. Again, I look forward to being able to pastor you in person through these dark days. This morning, we will be continuing through Mark in chapter 11, looking for wisdom from God's word, which is our only sure footing in such confusing times. First, we'll hear from Teresa Johnson as she reads Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11, and then we'll hear 1 John 3, 16 through 18, read by Sarah Robison. Prayers will be given by Ryan Johnson and one of our deacons, Jeanette Eadle. Worship will be led by Seth and Danielle Spangle and Vic Hess on the Cajon. Now, as many of us are beginning to feel disconnected, spiritually dry and detached, which I think is pretty normal given all that's going on in our world, let's focus our minds and hearts with extra purpose this morning to hear the word of God. A reading from Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called my name, and say, We are delivered! only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from 1 John three sixteen through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we have no shortage of reasons to mourn. 
Today we are experiencing the fruit of the long history of the enemy multiplying our depravities into idolatry. We mourn that life is not valued unless it is deemed wanted. We mourn that image bearers from minority cultures in this nation have reason for fear due to twisted hearts that wield power without fear of you. We mourn for those who long to keep communities safe, but are put in harm's way due to twisted hearts that have no fear of you. We mourn for the diseases that threaten our physical, mental, and emotional health. On top of this, we struggle with many temptations. We lack self-control and gentleness. We seek power by tearing others down. We wrestle with sexual immorality. Lord, have mercy on us. We feel so inadequate in the face of all these troubles, Lord, and worse yet, we see that we have had a part in propagating injustice and we've hurt each other. Keep us from discouragement. Let our faith be built up by the hope we have in you. And from overflowing hope, let love cascade from our lives into the lives of our friends, families, housemates, co-workers, and communities, so that there is no room for injustice or idolatry. Holy Spirit, give us courage and boldness to resist evil in all of its forms. We ask for protection for the peaceful protesters who rightly long for reform and call for accountability. We ask for protection for law enforcement and our whole community from people who desire chaos and have a thirst for violence. Give wisdom and fear of you to the governing authorities at every level and in every arena. Let them place righteousness and justice ahead of their election, power, approval, or economic success. Lord, unity in your church is being tested. We all long to gather. We miss fellowship, praising you together, and the solidarity that comes from the rhythm of regular gathering. As we are obedient to you in our submission to the guidance of our government, give us humility. Humility because we do not know everything. Humility because we are not in control. Your word says you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. Let us not be found in opposition to you, but instead found recipients of your grace, confident in your knowledge, secure in your power, and united by your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, my family and I were down in Disneyland in California. My mother-in-law was very generous to take us all, and we were living the high life at the hotel. Part of the package deal that we received was to gain access to a special room where all sorts of goodies and food were located. One morning, as we were sitting in this room eating breakfast, a man came in with his kids, sat down at a table, very quietly and quickly, and I noticed that he had long hair and a really thick beard. As I looked over at him across the room, I realized that underneath all of that hair was the well-known comedian and actor Jack Black. Some of you may know him from movies like Nacho Libre or School of Rock. Now, being a huge Nacho Libre fan, I got very excited, but I realized that no one else in the room seemed to even realize that this very famous Hollywood star was among us. So I snapped a quick picture from a distance, told my wife and kids, and then turned around and he was gone. Most everyone in the room never even noticed he was there, and I'm guessing it's because they didn't recognize him under all that long hair. 
It was a fun moment for me, and the fact that no one noticed him otherwise really had no negative outcome because no one was intimately connected to him. But if we were, we would have been very much regretful of the fact that we didn't recognize him. It would be like missing out on someone that you love dearly because you didn't see them. In our story today, we begin the final major section of Mark, that of the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of our Lord. Israel, from the days of Abraham on, had been looking forward to a sacrifice to remove the sins of mankind. And they'd also, since the days of King David, been looking forward to a messianic savior that would sit on the throne of Israel and reign. And in Jesus, they had both. Unfortunately, like my situation with Jack Black, what we're going to see today is that Israel largely did not recognize Jesus. And because of that, suffered a level of judgment and curse that is hard to comprehend. Today, we will be looking at what I've entitled as, you can write this down if you want, the curse that accompanies not recognizing Jesus. The curse that accompanies not recognizing Jesus. And by the divine providence of God, I believe that this is a truth that we and the rest of the American church need to hear at this present time. The passage that we are covering today is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 26. It is a large section, but it needs to be read together because Mark is using his literary method of sandwiching stories together to get a point across. And here we have four portions of text that weave together to give us our primary message today. Sections 1 and 3 have to do with the temple and Jesus' role as messianic king. Sections 2 and 4 act as parabolic judgments upon Israel because of their lack of recognizing Jesus as that king. And this is weighty. It's a weighty section in its contextual meaning to Israel and the implications toward their covenant with God. It's weighty in regards to what this means for the new covenant people, for you and I. But it's also weighty because it will give us a general message that can still be applied. Because as we will see, Israel was so busy practicing their religion and protecting their lifestyle that they did not recognize the one for whom that religion was intended to provide worship. So let's jump right in and read the first section in Mark 11, 1 through 11. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had to cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What we see first is, You can write this down if you'd like to. We see the silent coronation 
of the desired king. The silent coronation of the desired king. The author, Mark, does such an amazing job in this section. In verses 1 through 10, he is pointing out with bold effect the fact that Jesus is 100% the messianic savior that Israel was waiting for. Remember that the original audience of this gospel would have heard it read aloud, and as it was read, Mark was building the story to a fever pitch of messianic fervor. He does this with three very clear scriptural allusions. First, Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives, a small ridge of what we would term as hills here in the Pacific Northwest. And these lie to the east of the city. And he makes this seemingly odd request to go and commandeer a donkey on which he would ride. And this holds great symbolic power. You see, it was a donkey that the son of the great King David, Solomon the Wise, would enter into his coronation in 1 Kings chapter 1. Israel had a long history of recognizing that a proper king, based on the precedent of the Messiah to come, would rule in humility and not abuse of power. He would come riding on a beast of burden rather than on a war horse. So when the prophet Zechariah spoke of the Messiah to come, this is what he had to say in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Additionally, to get a donkey upon which no one else has sat holds symbolic power in that it is a donkey fit for a king. Secondly, not only did the picture of the donkey contribute to the messianic description, but also the people accompanying Jesus are shown to be placing their cloaks as a saddle. This is reminiscent of a passage from 2 Kings 9 in which Jehu, a wicked man from Israel, is made king. There every man took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew a trumpet and proclaimed him as king. I provide this cross-reference not because the Messiah is in any way connected to Jehu, but because this scripture helps us to see that there is precedent for this action as a way to show respect to a newly enthroned king. By placing their cloaks on this donkey, the author in Mark is clearly stating that this is Jesus' entry into his kingdom as coronated king. Third, after the donkey and the cloaks, we see that the Galileans that accompanied Jesus and the disciples to Jerusalem lay down leafy branches, possibly palm fronds, on the road, and they proclaim out loud, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is very clearly pulled from Psalm 118, verses 25 through 27, in which the psalmist says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Notice that it finishes the royal proclamation with a statement of binding the sacrificial animal to the altar for its work to bring forgiveness upon the people of Israel. This is clearly foreshadowing of the work of Christ that would be accomplished days later in this gospel. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus, the rightful king of the universe and of all Israel, would surrender himself to become the sacrifice given upon the altar of the cross for the sins that you and I have committed. 
By his sacrifice, you and I have been forgiven of all of our sins. In these three clear references of prior scripture, Mark is clearly painting Jesus as the answer to the messianic promise given to David by God, as well as drumming up this rally of Jesus' power as king within the last few lines of chapter 10. Now you might be asking, Hans, why did you call this the silent coronation of the desired king? It seems pretty noisy to me. Well, there's some debate on who was there to proclaim Jesus as Messiah, as well as how much of the city's population actually got involved. What Mark is portraying here, and the other Gospels give us a similar understanding in this as well, is that it was the band of followers from Galilee who were amazed and afraid in Mark chapter 10, previously in verses 32 through 24, that actually participated in this royal pep rally. The rest of the city was largely unresponsive. You actually can't get from the texts that it was the same group here that called out Hosanna, and then the same group that called out crucify him. This is often used in teachings to show the fickleness of the crowd, but we actually can't get that from the text. Now we know this because Mark does such an amazing job building up to that fever pitch we've been talking about. In our mind's eye, we see Jesus riding on the donkey, palm branches in the street, his Galilean followers screaming, Hosanna, save now. And they're crying out to their Messiah. And this is leading us to the scene of a supposed coronation. We in the United States are not very familiar with coronations, but if you're interested, you can spend a few minutes and find Queen Elizabeth of Britain's coronation on YouTube. It was quite the spectacle. She rode in in her carriage through the streets of London to the church at the center of the Church of England, Westminster Abbey. It was there that the crown was placed on her head and she was anointed queen. Well, similarly, Mark is having Jesus make his way to the place where the Messiah should be coronated and placed on the throne, the temple of Jerusalem. But look at what he does then in verse 11. In our mind's eye again, we are seeing the crowd cheer him on, and then it simply stops in verse 11. Jesus goes into the temple, looks around, and leaves. No fanfare, no pep rally, no worship. Inside the temple, no one is screaming Hosanna. To them, Jesus is unknown and unseen. They were too busy, as we will see, going about their business. So he left the temple that in point of fact was intended to worship him, to worship the desired king in the tangible presence of the holiness of Yahweh. But they missed it. And so it became the silent coronation of the desired king. God in incarnate form literally entered into his own house and no one noticed. Well, from there, Jesus returns to Bethany with his disciples and we await the following day where we then see, and you can write this down, the symbolic parable of covenant cursing. The symbolic parable of covenant cursing. Let's read in Mark 11, verses 12 through 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. 
and his disciples heard it. Now this, admittedly, is an odd parable if taken by itself. Jesus, the one who has shown miracles of healing and justice, seems to get hungry here and then throw a temper tantrum when the fig tree he finds doesn't have any fruit on it, even though it even says it's not the season for it. But it's exactly because it seems so out of place and out of character that we need to pay attention to it. To give us background, we must realize that Mark loves to sandwich together and interweave stories as he has edited this gospel so as to communicate the truth of who Jesus is. Now, let me pause there for a moment, because I know people in the Christian church often get a little bit nervous when we hear this idea of editing in the gospels. Many Christians that I've met over the years have become very concerned when they read all the gospels and start to bring them together in what is called a harmony of the gospels. They start to see that similar stories are used at different points in the Gospels, and they ask the question, how can I trust these? They obviously are not harmonized. But to read them correctly, we must realize that the Gospels were intentionally assembled in disparate ways so as to provide a clear communication. They still use the same core, but they show it in a different way. Each had its own different primary audience, Each had its own primary angle on Jesus, but they match in the biggest and most important point, which is that Jesus is the Messiah, come to save us from our sins and the consequence of sin, death and the wrath of God. So when gospel writers take similar stories and put them at varying points throughout the gospels, we don't need to worry about it. We can know two things. First, these events actually happened. Otherwise, the gospels wouldn't talk about them, even though... It's regardless of where they're used in each gospel. Secondly, we know where they're placed matters because the author is trying to get across a certain point to us in each gospel. Hopefully that clears that up a bit. Well then, for additional background, we need to realize that the fig tree is a well-known symbol of Israel, and particularly for Israel in its unfruitful state. Remember that Israel was a nation in covenant unity with the Lord. They were, as we have seen in recent studies, to be a light to the nations by the way they loved the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and strength, and loved one another within the just laws handed down to them. But as time went on in the various prophetic books, we read that they turned away from justice, and in doing so, they turned away from God himself. You can read about this in the blog I posted this week on righteousness and justice on our website. But as another example, just listen to God's condemnation of their unjust activity in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. It says there, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." 
God had clearly outlined for Israel that if they were not going to be the nation that he called them to be, they would be cursed. And this comes from the covenant that he made with them that is outlined in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 28 through 30, God is clear that obedience will lead to blessing and disobedience to cursing. Here is Deuteronomy 28:15. Deuteronomy 28:15 and I'm going to read through verse 20. It says this, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do, until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. And so as the prophets then roll along, it is a rotten, cursed fig tree that is used as symbolism for Israel. Let me read you a few of those passages. You can write down the address and go study it later. Here's Hosea 9.10. Hosea 9.10. It says, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, like the first fruit on the fig tree. In its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame, and became detestable like the thing they loved. Then we have Micah 7, 1 through 3. And notice especially what this is linked to, injustice and an inability to root it out in their nation. He says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. As when grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, that's an idiom for injustice, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. Injustice in the land was leading to God's curse. Take a look with me at Jeremiah 8.11. Why don't you turn there with me? Jeremiah 8.11. And we'll read through verse 13. In Jeremiah 8.11, it says this, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. And so, back in Mark, this same imagery is used in an active parable by Jesus and pronounced by Mark. Jesus has gone to the heart of the covenantal religious system, the very seat of sacrifice to Yahweh, and he found emptiness and unfruitfulness, just as he found on this fig tree. 
Nothing had truly changed in the heart of the people since the days of the prophets, and for that they would be ultimately judged by God. Just as with the fig tree, the Israelites looked like they should be fruitful from the outside, lots of bright, shiny leaves. But when you truly investigated, they bore no fruit, and so Jesus cursed them. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. The curses associated with the covenant were pronounced in this symbolic parable of covenant cursing. And this would set the stage for the next section, where we see, and you can write this down, the active judgment upon Israel's hypocrisy. The active judgment upon Israel's hypocrisy. Let's read back in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 15 and read through verse 19. Mark eleven fifteen, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus enters the temple, and no one has to wonder if he was simply strategizing in verse 11, because he immediately goes nuts. Jesus starts rioting in the middle of the temple because of the injustice he sees. The outer courts of the temple were to be reserved for the Gentiles to worship, but here the money changers had taken over and were running a racket. People would come to worship as on this Passover, and they would be told their animal was not good enough. The pilgrims would then give up their animal, as well as pay money for a new, supposedly more spotless animal. They would also need to pay their temple taxes and possibly exchange currency. And so Jesus literally stood in the middle of this huge financial process and said, enough. And he calls them out and says that instead of making it a place in which the nations can come and worship and pray, they have made it a den of thieves. Jesus was rioting in the middle of their temple, and the religious leaders were furious. They come to him and are trying to destroy him. Why? Because he was disturbing their kingdom that they had built. And in this moment, Jesus was judging and proclaiming as defunct the sacrificial and religious system of Israel. The crazy thing is that by doing this, Jesus was actually giving even more proof he was the Messiah. You see, it was the job of the Messiah to purify the temple and bring in pure worship. He was supposed to set up their sanctuary of purified worship in their midst. But even more fury-invoking, is Jesus' statement about the temple becoming a den of thieves. This is a direct reference to a very condemning text in Jeremiah 7 that Teresa read to us earlier. Would you turn there with me to Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 11. It says this, The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, that's the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. 
Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. What was it that Jeremiah was condemning Israel for here? Well, you'll notice it was a lack of executing justice with one another. And this is not retributive justice, like we think about in our disciplinary system in the United States. This is restorative justice, fixing the oppression of the vulnerable people. And so it's for this lack of executing justice and oppression of the vulnerable and idolatry that Jeremiah is condemning Israel. The people of Israel would live lives in idolatry, cast a blind eye to injustice, practice sin, and then walk right into the temple the next day and proclaim, we are delivered. In our Christian language today, we would say, isn't it great that we're all saved, and yet injustice would rage outside the doors? Brothers and sisters, we want to turn these pictures of the Israelites into these evil people that did such horrific sins that they should have known better. But if we look at our own history in the American Christian church, we'll see things like what I saw this week as I researched the topic of racism. And I saw over and over again that the very people that were lynching individuals in the South would then the very next day go in and preach in the pulpit in the Christian church. If they can be that blind, could we be blind as well? Now, dearest brothers and sisters of mission, and those of you listening, I'm guessing that by now, some of you are thinking that I'm trying to wedge scripture into current events, and possibly even frustrated that I keep bringing up topics of justice in light of what's going on in our world. But I want to beg you to reason with me from scripture. Read the words yourself. Israel was condemned because they were to be God's special people, a light for the nations, who would draw all nations to his character of kindness, justice, and holiness. Over and over again, it is because of idolatry and injustice that they are condemned. Not lack of proclaiming the name of God. They preached just fine. They were doing that. But the God that they were proclaiming was discredited by their lack of action in the way that they lived. They forsook the laws delivered to them in the name of what was called then fertility, worshiping gods such as Baal, but now what would be called prosperity or mammon, the god of money. You see, the recent killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, among others, and the anger surrounding racism is not a new issue. And many people are trying to get past these immediate issues, but Take a look at the history of racism in our country 
and race, racial segregation, the history of segregation in the way housing was developed in cities, how healthcare was deployed, how education was given to the black community. Take a look at how that was adjusted in some very good ways during the civil rights era, but then housing has largely remained unchanged, which then leads to education centers in predominantly black communities operating with less resources than their white counterparts. And rather than reacting in defensiveness, let's research if these claims are true by looking at a myriad of voices, not just the ones that we're used to. Because, dear church, if these claims of injustice are true, it should be us, the ones bought and purchased with the blood of Christ, that should be the first to respond. And if you do the research and find that this is just totally not an issue, then what have you lost? We have only lost if we defensively cast aside the question, is injustice happening? Does racism still exist? And does it exist within us? We need to ask that question rather than get defensive. If it is, and we're not paying attention to it, not caring about it because we're removed from it in our predominantly white middle-class church, then there is the possibility that we are full of green leaves, but we might be missing some fruit in how we tackle injustice. This is at least distressing enough for us to ask the question, is it not? Dear brothers and sisters, our core conviction is that you and I were criminals, deserving God's righteous wrath. It would have been just for his just judgment to come upon us. It would have been death, which is what we deserve. And yet, in that very moment, while you and I were yet sinners, in the midst of our crime, God loved us in this way. He sent his only son to die in your place and mine. He laid his life down for his brothers, for we who were oppressed under the hand of sin, death, and hell. His hands and feet were crucified, and he was murdered innocently on a cross, so that you and I would never see the hell that we deserved. And then three days later, he resurrected to prove to all creation that he is the rightful king that laid down his life for those that are his. God acted to raise us up from our depravity to seat us next to him on his heavenly throne. If we simply take that for granted and sing our songs and proclaim that we're saved and yet never step into the uncomfortable world of working for his kingdom reign in this world and of raising others up to understand his glory and grace, are we any different? than the unfruitful Israelites condemned by Christ? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, and in truth. 1 John 3, 16-18 Dear Church, we cannot turn a blind eye to what is going on around us. The world is crying out for answers, for leaders, and for hope. If we, the Church, bury our head in the sand and go about our business as if we don't have the answers the world is looking for, 
I fear for what Christ will say to us when we see him face to face. This is not the time to sit waiting. It is the time to engage in the work of the kingdom. And so you might then ask, as many people have been to me lately, what can I do about such a horrific problem that spans the ages and the continents? Dear brother and sister, you can begin by educating yourself, inspecting yourself, and finding if there is any wicked way in you. The blog that I wrote this week that is on our website provides some ways to do that. Read the blog, but then also look at the resources and links available. Engage them. Actually engage in the uncomfortable truth that maybe we, the church, have indeed been complicit in the ongoing injustice in our country. And if you are hearing this and thinking, Hans, I just don't see it, please do me the courtesy of researching what I am saying before you dismiss it out of hand. That's what my story has been these last few weeks. After years of seeing this cycle happen, about the black community getting enraged after seeing violence done to one of their people, we see this cycle of protesting and political outrage on both sides. And so after years of seeing this cycle happen, I simply stopped and asked the question, am I missing something? Dear brother and sister, please ask that question before you put your politics in front of providing the mercy of God. Engage the resources on that blog and see if maybe they might give you a bit of new information. Because I, for one, do not want to turn out like that fig tree. Our proclamation of the truth of Calvary is far more powerful if we proceed it with the same ministry of bringing forth righteousness and justice that Jesus did before he went to the cross. And that brings us back to Mark 11. Let's read our last section from Mark 11, verses 20 through 25. It says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand in prayer, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Here we see the closing command of Christ, which I have summarized as this, and write this down. Have faith in God, act in his name. Have faith in God, act in his name. There is debate among commentators about this section of scripture. Many, if not most, believe that Mark took a number of different sayings of Christ, not associated with the fig tree event, and compiled them here. Either way, he is trying to get across to us the need to have faith in God. Peter sees the fig tree that Jesus cursed and is blown away that it is already withered to its roots. God's judgment works quickly. 
Jesus does not reply with these next statements as a disconnected group of sayings that imply that if we have enough faith, we can pray for whatever we want and God will give it to us. What Jesus is stating here is that the purposes of God will be accomplished. And if we pray in line with those purposes and will, we can be assured that it will happen. Some believe that Jesus possibly pointed towards the mount upon which the temple sat here, the temple mount, and was implying that even something as powerful and seemingly invincible as the temple and its religious system could be destroyed, symbolized by casting into the sea. And so we are to act with faith in God and cover all of it in prayer with expectancy that God will provide it. He then continues and attaches something interesting to that prayer, a topic of forgiveness. This is shorthand for the work of relational reconciliation, the end goal of all works of righteousness and justice. Again, this is not just a religious checklist item that we are to do to get what we want. It is part of being the people of God. Confession, repentance, forgiveness of wrongs. These are the core of who we are as the new humanity of God's born-again people. We are to be exactly the opposite of what Jesus just cursed. We are to be a people on mission with God in his gospel work to redeem and reconcile mankind and creation to himself and to one another. As Christ says himself in the text in which he taught us to pray, he said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. God doesn't want our fake, disingenuous worship if we are not acting out the truth of our salvation in our daily lives. In Matthew 5, 23-24, Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. If we are his, we will have faith in God and act in his name. We are to be people that not only preach the orthodox truth of the gospel, we are to be a people that practice the natural outcome of being saved by the gospel. The people of Israel were too myopically focused on doing the everyday practice of their dead religion. Because of their intense desire to protect what they believed to be true, they were unable to see the king right in front of them. This sets the background for the coming scenes leading up to his crucifixion. But before that comes, we see in our text today the curse that accompanies not recognizing Jesus. The question we must ask this morning is, am I one of those people that is too myopically focused on my religious creeds and religious traditions that I am walking around saying, I am delivered, when in fact we are far from God's heart because our hearts are not breaking for what breaks his The situation in our country right now and the cry of the black community for justice is not a political issue. Many are trying to make it that, absolutely. But making it that clouds the fact that brothers and sisters throughout this nation who are made in the image of God are crying out for help. And when people cry for help, Christ followers answer. The first step in answering this injustice is a simple and yet almost impossibly difficult one. It requires us to humble ourselves to the point of simply listening rather than responding in defensiveness. It requires us to put aside what we think we know to hear from another that we might need to know. It requires admitting that we could have things wrong, and that's okay. It requires us to put down the defensiveness that so quickly pops up when issues of justice and race come up. 
It requires us to take the time and energy to actually pick up a book or watch a video or do some research on topics we have been conditioned to look past. And the current issue of justice with regard to the black community is not the only issue of injustice, but it is the predominant one right now. Issues such as abortion, sex trafficking, financial inequality, poverty overseas, and many more are issues that we need to meet head on. Don't let the enormity of these issues cause you to stand back in stunned silence. And don't buy into this lie that has pervaded the church that just because we're not going to change the world until Christ fully returns, that we should sit back and do nothing. Guys, if that were the case, Jesus would have told every single person who came to him for help in the Gospels, I can't actually help you because the solution is only the cross. Well, we know for salvation, the solution is only the cross. But Jesus also called us to act. So don't let that enormity of these issues cause you to stand back in stunned silence. Instead, choose an issue. Choose one that you think that you can learn about and engage. And then engage it with research and understanding so that you might be a champion within our church to help us fight injustice from every angle. If every person in Mission Fellowship does this, we will be a force to be reckoned with. Dear Church, it's exactly because we are a church that takes the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word so seriously that all this is on my heart. There is no hope outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so we will keep preaching it unabashedly. To do works of justice without the end goal of bringing the gospel to bear is worthless. And at the same time, dear brothers and sisters, Righteousness and justice are the very things that are at the foundation of God's throne, God's rule over his people. Does Jesus reign in your life? Then righteousness and justice will be important to you as well. They will be the means to drawing the nations to the kindness of God. So we have seen that we need to make issues of justice our business and engage them so that we are not operating in hypocrisy like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. But Jesus also finishes with some other very clear applications along with that. Second, we need to read our Bible and study it. I know I said this last week, but again, if we can't recognize what is actually near and dear to God's heart, how do we know if we are imaging him correctly? How do we know we are even recognizing him correctly? Again, I would point you to the blog I wrote this last week. Study the issue of righteousness and justice so that you can see that it is indeed core to the Christian faith. Third, we need to have faith in God's plan. If you are like me and you are struggling with hope and struggling with trusting in God's providence lately, this is a word for us that we can trust that while weeping lasts for a night, joy comes in the morning. This current suffering of our nation is not empty. God will use it somehow. Have faith in him. Fourth, we need to pray for the will of God, that his kingdom would come through us and pray that God would break our hearts and disturb our complacency and comfort so that we might accomplish his will. Dear Saint, how much are you praying that prayer right now? How much are you praying for the gospel to be proclaimed across our nation right now? Please join me in that this week as you pray. 
And lastly, Jesus commands us to examine our hearts for places in which we need to practice forgiveness that leads to reconciliation. At the heart of the gospel is Jesus's work that reconciles us to God and to one another. To ignore the need of reconciliation among brothers in the body is to ignore Christ. If you know that you need to reconcile with someone in the body today because there's conflict, don't let this moment pass. Repent. Act on it. Reconcile. Mission Fellowship, I love you so dearly that I bring to you these tough topics because I want each of us to stand firm in assurance that we know Christ, are known by Christ, are empowered by Christ, and are living in a way that proclaims the name of Christ. If we recognize the true Jesus, we will make his priorities our priorities. And instead of suffering the cursing we saw today, we will instead be blessed by him.
Jesus, you are beyond what we can expect or imagine. You humbled yourself to our level and came down to be with us, to share life with us, to suffer with us, and to save us from our brokenness. We thank you that you came to abolish the barriers and divisions among us. You unite the poor and the rich, the weak and the strong, the black and the white and the brown, the popular and the outcasts, the old and the young, the immigrant and the resident. Jesus, we have so much to learn from you. Please teach us. No matter our opinions in all of this, we all bow as sinners at the foot of your cross. You unite us in ways that are humanly impossible. Please bring us together in you. Bring reconciliation and bring unity. Let us as a church be a testament to your glory, not a hindrance to it. Jesus, we become prideful and think that you are like us, but you are infinitely good and infinitely beyond what we can expect or imagine. Please humble us to be challenged to know you more. You challenged people's status quos back then, and you, cha- you continue to challenge our status quo today in ways we don't expect. Please soften our hearts to listen to your truth. Give us wisdom on when to stand firm in things and when to let things go. Jesus, we want to know you and to follow you. Please help us to truly seek you and hear your words, not the words the world may be trying to tell us. Help us to seek your will and how to honor you and follow you and to love our friends, our neighbors, and our community. Help us to share your love with those around us and to be a light in this dark world for you. Father, our community is feeling especially broken this week. Through your spirit, please bring healing to us, individually, as a community, and as a nation. That seems impossible, Father, but you are the God of the impossible, and we praise you for that. You know our hearts, Father. Please humble us to seek your truth. Soften our hearts from our political agendas to genuinely desire to seek your will in this. Please unite our hearts to follow you and love as you loved us. Humble and unite our leaders. Humble and unite our communities. Humble and unite us as your people. Thank you so much for your love, your grace, and for walking with us through every part of this life. You are so good, Father, and so faithful, even in the midst of so much brokenness. We love you so much, Father. Thank you. Amen.